Hey, hey, y'all. I'm here today with Andrew Woods. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. Uh, I, won't, I won't introduce you. You, you introduce yourself. What do you, whatever you want to say. Well, I'm, I'm Andrew Woods, and I met David in a class uh, about, um, among other thinkers, Hannah Arendt. Um, and we're going to discuss the human condition uh, now, one of her more uh, famous works, which I've um, leafed through for the fourth time in my life. Uh, I had two professors in my masters who were absolutely obsessed with this book, and uh, sort of passed on their uh, love for a rent onto me. So uh, I think that we'll probably have um, some fun uh, going through it again. I guess. Yeah, this this is a book I've come back to a number of times. Mm -hmm. um, I, oddly enough, the first time I read it was in like high school because I had a pro, I had a teacher, my basketball coach, who told me to read it. I didn't understand a thing, but uh, anyways, yeah. So you're a you're a doctoral candidate now, or doctoral oh, student? Indeed. Doctoral students. Yeah. And what is what is your research like broadly? My research is um, into the work of Simone Weil and also post-autonomous thinkers like Franco Bifo Pavarotti, Marizio Lazzarato, uh, Silvia Federici, Paolo uh, Verno. Continental. Yeah, pr pr pretty heavily continental. Um, really like talking about the future. Um, and there are sort of, uh, uh, Arendt gets into that a bit in this book with, you know, the promise and unpredictability, which yeah. I, um, which is a concept that I kind of butchered in my master's thesis. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I didn't use the promise the way that she wanted it to be used, but I think that um, it, it gives you a sense of what this conversation is going to be like. Yes. Yeah. Oh, uh, I, I don't think Arendt would be happy about the way that I did. <laughs> no, uh, uh, yeah, I feel like Arendt, uh, of all the thinkers we kind of uh, explore here, is a pretty stringent one. You know, you don't want to you don't want to get outside the boundaries of where her mind was at. But yeah. that's a good that's a good place to start. And thinking about the prologue, she does spend a good deal of time on this thing called the future, or whatever will culminate into the future, mm -hmm. with regards to satellites, mm -hmm. or thinking about the way in which satellites either mark something of a, a progression in this thing called the human condition, or moving beyond it, and I was wondering what you thought about that specifically. Mm -hmm. Well, it's definitely a book written under the shadow of one Sputnik and also the uh, mushroom cloud of uh, Hiroshima, um, really. Um, I, I, and she explores what these two events mean for the human condition in another essay called like The Conquest of Man and... No, The Conquest of Space and the Statue of Man. Was that a standalone essay? Or no, th this, this appeared in uh, Between Past and Future and she kind of flips the assumption of uh, going to space being uh, this tran transcending of the human condition and um, a way to make man more powerful and uh, uh, greater into something that actually makes uh, humans appear a lot smaller because they're no longer um, earthbound, uh, no longer in this environment that, um, that gives them this kind of proportions. They've become uh, creatures of the universe 
and um, because the universe is so vast, uh, the stature of uh, humanity has been greatly reduced. Um, and she, she touches on this in the human condition with the oh, yeah. idea of the Archimedean point. Yeah. Um, and uh, where contemporary science has uh, taken us uh, to this to a situation where um, we're no longer uh, confined to Earth, but these um, but are capable of introducing processes that occur in the universe into the human space. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And how that Archimedean point existing necessarily outside of the parameters of what, you know, what we consider Earth, mm -hmm. how in that is a sort of, it operates as a sort of mirror, where, mm -hmm. where there is that thing in space that almost gives us a, a, a point of reference from, from which to analyze ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, and this comes out in many different forms, especially today thinking about satellites, mm -hmm. like in which, you know, and you get all the surveillance arguments about that. Um, but in what way, even thinking about cell phones or, or uh, communication more broadly, in what way does the, I guess, ironically, the way that we were able to connect to ourselves, humans broadly, mm -hmm. with other humans across the globe more easily, was for us to find a way outside of the globe, mm -hmm. quite ironically, yeah. how that worked out. Um, but it's, it's really interesting that um, thinking about the future, thinking about technology, are elements of a book titled The Human Condition. Because it would seem as though, for me at least, thinking about technology would mark something of a, you know, the Heideggerian negative ontology mm -hmm. or, or moving like be, um, necessarily into a very non-human condition space. Mm -hmm. So is there anything for you that would explain why she throws that into the prologue? Like, what is it about this event that... that propels this this book or starts it out for us big question I know yeah no I mean, it's I'd say that it's links to what she says about action um, um, and how it has this uh, process character mm -hmm. of um, how uh, scientists no longer uh, observe natural phenomena but um, introduce uh, processes or, pr or provoke processes through their um, through their experiments uh, through their discoveries and what um, they perceive as truth is what humankind can make um, and with Sput uh, Sputnik, it's um, an addition, it's a, it's a new condition that's no longer within uh, the world. Because for, for, for Arendt, an important um, aspect of the Homo Faber, of fabrication of work, is this construction of the world as opposed to the Earth. So what does it mean to have uh, this uh, this work, uh, this action that takes place out, uh, outside the boundaries of what's always been considered as the world? Um, and, and I think when she writes in the prologue, she talks about a particular line uh, that came from the interview of uh, mankind will not remain bound to the earth forever. 
Um, and then on the very next page, she writes, the earth is a very quintessence of the human condition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, a, w a way of her... I mean, let me put this another way. The, uh, the human condition is um, very much uh, the work of a intellectual historian, I think, and also has this kind of elegiac quality to it of we are... Um, losing the the structure of the active life that has um, persisted with us since ancient times. Right. Um, and uh, what 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 does this mean mm -hmm. um, for, for, for us? Because it, um, throughout the book, it seems like every um, activity within the active life has just been dislodged from its proper place. Yep. Um, she talks. About, I mean, she, she discusses the like, in interdependence of labor, work, and action, which are the uh, main categories she uses for the um, the active life throughout the book. Um, and she says that labor is redeemed by work, which uh, erects a world of durability. Because the main problem of, of 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 labor is that it's an entirely cyclical process and it wears down. Um, it, it wears down durability, um, it increases consumption, which means the objects are more disposable, and the redemption of um, the, the redemption of work from meaninglessness of being constantly stuck in this means ends mentality of everything every everything can be used as a means for something else is uh, from action, which is using speech and um, action like uh, lexis and praxis to uh, imbue things with meaning. Um, so, 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 so she sees the human condition as a kind of ecosystem. Um, and Sputnik um, and the, um, the introduction of action into natural processes in contemporary science is a, is a threat to that, I think. Yeah. For her. So that that'd be a good. Now she lays out three fundamental things, right, that make mm -hmm. up this thing called the human condition that stands somewhat opposed mm -hmm. to, um, I guess, the shift in this Archimedean point, which we'll get into uh, a little bit later on. But mm -hmm. these three things are very simply labor, work, and action. I feel you and I can we we can breeze right through that. Like what, whatever those three things are, and their quick kind of definitions, and she lays them out very quickly right at the beginning, where labor corresponds to the yeah. fundamental biological uh, necessities of life, the shitting, the eating, the the copulation, mm -hmm. stuff like that, that would make it so that you weren't able to live if you, well, one might argue you weren't living if you weren't conducting the other things as well, yeah. but you would perish as a as a human mm -hmm. being if you did not do that. Yes, yeah, certainly. Following that, we have a work. Now that this for me is the is the trickiest one to kind of grasp because mm -hmm. for me it blends between labor uh, or or this and labor, work and labor, kind of fold together at certain points. Mm -hmm. Where for me it could see it would appear as though those things are not labor. Sorry, I meant to say action. Mm -hmm. Where those things that are often conceived as like political acts, especially in the consideration and. I don't know, uh, feminist thought where the private is 
the political mm -hmm. or anything that would go on in one's own private life can then mm -hmm. be construed as the political it would seem as though work and action share some affinities with one another mm -hmm. but for the sake of this here work is how one engages with the world through words and deeds or is that no, well, no through toil through the might through uh, looking, uh, through fabrication, through fabrication, through building durable objects in the world that that's constitute the world. Tilling the soil. T t t tilling tilling the soil for her is right. this example of labor that constitutes a work. Mm -hmm. um, it's this cyclical activity that actually creates something durable in the world. Yeah, but yet it is wholly necessary in many cases. Thinking about something like I don't know. The necessity for shelter, mm -hmm. or something like that, demands demands yeah. demands work, right? Mm -hmm. In order to maintain that, so that's quite quite simply what work is. And then mm -hmm. action is, you know, that political thinking, autonomous sort of subject mm -hmm. in the or the vita activa, that that or the vita contemplativa, mm -hmm. contemplativa, yeah. uh, that is just pretty well the person that. Thinking about the ancient Greeks in the polis and what it necessarily meant to be an active agent in something called the political realm or mm -hmm. something of a to be among other people. Mm -hmm. So we have starting out right at the first chapter these three things. Now, what is it about labor, just to start out quite simply, that she gives it that sort of quality, like that she says? Labor is that thing that is, is universal to everyone. And in that way, does it then correspond to a, a primary element to this, this triad here of, of the human condition? Or is it something that is not wholly necessary for the realization of the other two? So in that way, is there like a telos? I, I, I certainly feel like they're all connected. Um, that you can't have any of them without the, the other. I mean, she, she goes on to explain this in more depth in um, in the public and the private realm. And on the next page in the uh, introduction, she talks about how they uh, are linked to birth and death, natality and mortality, and labor is the is the pro is the activity that ensures that one individual survival and life of the species. Um, with work, it's more about permanence. Um, that um, combats the futility of, of of life. The fact that we're going to die. Um, it gives us a sense that our lives are going to mean something. That people uh, are going to be living in this sort of same space and will remember us. And this is also um, how it links in with action too. Because the people who inhabit this uh, permanent space are able to remember what came before and in a sense creates uh, history. And for Arendt, she had, it's not the kind of uh, Hegelian understanding of history as process, it's the understanding of history as um, a sequence of events or actions. Um, so there's, it's not uh, like the dialectic of the world spirit. Um, as it occurs, um, I think I've just completely stormed past what you asked. <laughs> I think my question was rather obscure, yeah. but I, but I'm interested in what you said there, yeah. making a distinction between the um, Hegelian notion of the dialectic with this. Mm -hmm. When you said that 
for Arendt, you believe that history was a sequence of actions, or, or mm-hmm. uh, in almost those words. Do you mean action in the way that she states it here, where it's almost those moments of greatness? Or those yeah, moments yeah. Of it's all about um, arete, excellence. Right, excellence, um, yeah, that's a better word. Uh, so, it's, so it's these words and deeds and works, and she talks about uh, later in the book where the... Um, the deeds of great people um, when they're in the uh, course or, or, or while they're happening aren't really understood and they need to be um, it, it needs to be studied by the historian in order for those deeds to make sense right um, and, and this is a relationship between um, uh, the, the work and action of um, the the historian, the artist, um, are able to commemorate or memorialize um, the greatness of these historical figures. Right, and it is it is almost as though culture, and I'll use that term really broadly, uh, is founded upon these these instances. Right, mm-hmm. so whatever would consider you know, uh, moving from one episteme to the next, uh, has some indubitable affinity with whatever was going on as far as mm-hmm. great works, great works of art or, or anything like that, uh, were concerned. We think about mm-hmm. the shifts in like, I don't know, in, in art from the Gothic to, mm-hmm. to w- w- whatever you might, you might have there. But there seems like, and the the Marxists like the Marxists would hate that, right? Because yeah. then then it's like, well, what about what about the the real labor that goes on yeah. behind such a thing? And she has she gets into Marx here uh, in her own way, but it would seem like a certainly a disavowal mm-hmm. of that side of history, right? Of what's going on in the realm of labor, or those people mm-hmm. who are, who can't yeah. engage in in action, to which I I don't know what. How Arendt would respond. Well, I mean, Arendt is very conscious of that in the public and private realm because her whole argument about labor and the household is that these uh, there need to be people taking care of <coughs> the uh, of life itself uh, before uh, people are, uh, other people are able to participate in action. Um, so I mean, it's. I mean, and she talks about this, the pre-political realm, as being uh, violent, as being full of force, um, and the, the violence being the foundation of um, the equality and plurality of uh, the polis. Right, right. And when we're thinking about this uh, in terms of the Greeks, we're thinking specifically of, of Aristotle. Very much Aristotle. She's very ferociously critical of Plato. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> well, actually, wh- why why do you think that is? Because with uh, Plato is uh, a, is a think is a philosopher who tries to bring in the work of fabrication into the sphere of action, like uh, and he's uh, for, 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 for for Arendt and for. Aristotle to a certain degree. I mean, I, I feel like Arendt def- definitely romanticizes Aristotle to a degree. Um, <laughs> yeah, at least. 
with Plato, there's a relationship between uh, there's a hierarchy between those people who know and those that do, um, like with the philosopher kings, and then there's the the guardians and also the other people who participate in um, the, this idol city that uh, Socrates imagines in the uh, in the Republic, um, and for Arendt. They're in the sphere of politics and the sphere of action, um, you can't make up the rules because the the lawgiver is actually uh, someone who participates in fabrication rather than action, and you can't be ruled because that means that you'd be under uh, some kind of necessity. Right. So you need to um, have freedom if you're going to participate in the public sphere if you're going to be a person of action. Whereas with with, with Plato, it's all about um, the person who makes the rules and the persons and the people who have to right. follow the rules. The shoemaker is going to be the shoemaker yeah. for their whole lives, and it's, mm -hmm. it's quite as, as simple as that. But uh, I mean, the, 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 the people who are ruling the uh, the, the, the republic are uh, following the same model as the, yeah, as yeah, the yeah. shoemaker. It's all about this idea, and right. yeah. uh, the philosopher king needs to execute this idea in real life. Yeah, which is what the um, Homo Faber does. It, they, they take the idea of a table and they turn it into the material. And they use the material to turn it into a real table. Right. Exactly. So, so the two the two texts, uh, in contrast, would be the Republic and then uh, politics. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's an interesting moment though in in politics when Aristotle, when he's kind of outlining the two different spheres or the mm -hmm. two different realms, you know, mm -hmm. the public and the private, he states that there is supposed to be present in, for example, the public, some components of the private. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of whatever we consider to be uh, indicative of the private realm, notably uh, a sort of autonomy, sort of a, an ability to exert a sort of authority or a speech in order to demonstrate one's point is necessary for the maintenance of, of a sort of like a hierarchization within the home, the oikos, uh, which for Aristotle, at least for me, is something of an interesting point. So when Arendt is conceives of this thing called the social. It mm. seems as though it, w it was always moving towards that to some degree, right? So the social is that sort of dissipation of that distinction between the public and the private in favor of, you know, the, the end of excellence, right? Just mm. the sort of broad institutional mediocrity all around, mm -hmm. perhaps in some sense, uh, the realization of the Republic, you know, to some, to the nth factor. I don't know if you want to think about that for a moment. Or You, you have a yeah. bunch of notes. I mean, I, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll say this right here. If you want to talk about anything that chronologically, yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm not opposed no, to it. No, I, 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 I like the uh, wandering discussion a little more. Um, so, yeah, in the, in the rise of the social section, I mean, she, she, it's about the disappearance of the polis, which is the space where equality was possible because the the private realm was hidden away in in that household, and the household's all about inequality and violence, yeah, and, yeah. and and hierarchy, and so for Arendt, the rise of the socialism was shift from this very um, rigid public-private distinction toward. Uh, society, a distinction between society and intimacy, 
Um, and with intimacy, it's all about the heart, all about um, all about the emotions, which was not what uh, the household was about at all. Um, and, and and society is uh, the, the administration of society, and it's um, all about administration, as if um, everyone who belongs to this particular society has the same interest. And she discusses how um, uh, the aim of labour uh, shifted from equilibrium, or to make sure that. Um, the people who participate in the public realm have enough to keep that, uh, to maintain that role uh, toward expansion, which is uh, which links to her distinction between property and wealth. Because it, when the public realm existed, or the polis in her eyes, um, private property was merely a way just to have a fixed point in the world, um, and everything that happened on that private property was. Uh, a means to participate in the public sphere, and and with wealth uh, for the, for the shift to wealth, it it's just um, the aim of that is exponential growth. So you want more yeah. money. I mean, it's like the yeah. uh, basic formula of capital of like money and then commodity and just to make more money. Yeah. Um, so, so 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 where was I? That's one. That's one of the shifts that happens from uh, that happens with the rise of the social. Um, another thing is that behaviour replaces action, so it's no longer about this pursuit of excellence. It's all about uh, conf uh, conformity rather than um, distinction. Right. Um, and she has, uh, and she writes about statistics as um, not being a reflection of what's really going on but you know also a way to determine what's normal and what's yeah um abnormal right um, and that uh statistics yeah. is just one example Op is is an apparatus that not only homogenizes its object of study that mm -hmm. would imply that you know a random select group is then representative of the whole but it does affirm in some sense uh the very capacity for some that very scientific observation, right? Mm -hmm. The ability to say, you know, I have this method, and this method is going to do this, and then this is going to give us this result, but it's it's, an, it's a result that's often already known in mm -hmm. advance, right? Because statistics don't necessarily just present a, some kind of neutral fact, but they actually operate to confirm or to affirm, reaffirm the very need for statistics, in a mm -hmm. sense, that the maintenance of that sort of, um, that, that, institution or that apparatus, that assemblage, that is part and parcel of that sort of scientific component mm -hmm. we were speaking about at the beginning. But what, to what extent then, if we think about, actually, you know what, I'll wait, what, what, do, do you have something to add to that? No, no, I'm, I'm intrigued about this question. Oh, well, it, it's not a great question, but I was wondering about the... Uh, man as social animal, or man as political animal, or man as action animal. Oh yes, it's, uh, what's the name of that <laughs> section there? It's like, uh, social or political animal. Yeah, it's, uh, a man as social or a political animal. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. That's the question. Um, I was wondering what you thought about that. Because if we, if we would what? think man is a political what? animal, that is, uh... <laughs> 
that is coming right out of Aristotle. But man, as a social mm-hmm. animal, is uh, it's a little bit more complicated because that would imply the sort of realization of Arendt's theorization of that social realm coming into fruition. Where mm-hmm. thinking about that, you know, just from the title alone, we get into a rather interesting territory. So she's talking about a mistranslation that carries over to the work of Aquinas, who was influential, and where he's um, discussing, where he's comparing the head of the household to the head of the kingdom, of of, uh, the king. So there's this premonition of uh, the social as administration, as this view of society as an entity that has a single interest. Um, and that's the distinction between the social and the political animal, I, I suppose, because for her, politics is means plurality, whereas the social means a kind of unity in the sense of conformity. Um, in a sense of behavior over action. Right. Um, right. So that, uh, I want to pick out a, a passage here uh, from uh, the section dealing with the rise of the uh, the, the social. Which Where, page are you on? Uh, 41 in my, in my version. 41. Probably be something they, they, they all have the same, even though they're different editions, they, uh, it's the same pages in each really? one, which is kind of very convenient. Oh, that's, that is good. Uh, where it goes, the rise of mass society, on the contrary, only indicates... Actually, I should say the... Yeah, no, the, 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 I, 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 oh, no, actually, yeah, no. I was, for a second, I was like, I was totally bullshitting. <laughs> it's the different page. No, no, yeah. no, I know what you're talking about. What matters is, the, is this equation with social status, and it is immaterial whether the framework happens to be actual rank in the half-feudal society of the 18th century, title in the class society of the 19th, or mere function in the mass society of today. The rise of mass society, on the contrary, only indicates that the various social groups have suffered the same absorption into one society that the family units had suffered earlier. With the emergence of mass society, the realm of the social has finally, after several centuries of development, reached the point where it embraces and controls all members of a given community, equally and with equal strength. What's wrong with that? I mean, is, is there anything wrong with this thing called equality? So it's a different kind of equality to what well, they're, 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 Tell me about it. I mean, because you have, you have, you think. Well, it's I mean, it's, it's, yeah, that's the strange thing with what Arendt says about um, uh, action. I mean, if you, if you go str- to, to the section on action, um, uh, the first thing she says about it is like, uh, I keep on looking past it. Yeah, the human plurality, basic condition of both action and speech are the twofold. Uh, character of equality and distinction, whereas back in the private and public realm section, she's like, no, there needs to be these slaves in the household and there needs to be this sort of violence going on, this sort of pre-political realm for equality to take, to, to exist at all. Yeah. And yeah. when you read those uh, two sections in conjunction, you're like, well, there's, there's an irony here of this political realm where people can be equals is predicated on inequality. Yeah. Um, 
and I suppose for um, Arendt, the rebuttal she'd have to what's wrong with the kind of equality in mass society is, well, what can most people do with that equality? It's like the classic Marxist critique of freedom under capitalism, of your, uh, your, your you are free, but you're, you're also free to starve. Um, and, and you don't have the sort of material resources to use this equal status in the same way as it was intended uh, in the ancient world. Which is not to say that, you know, um, uh, mass enfranchisement was a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. But um, it, it, it's compl- it, it, she's conscious of the ways that these concepts have evolved over time. Right. And right. What, what's lost in the way that production has developed. Or, or how different spheres of the Vita Activa have uh, gained dominance um, over the course of history and how that affects the, the, the concepts and the lexicon that we use to discuss politics. Yeah. So, if m- I just back up a couple of steps, the Vita Activa, Activa what, what, what is that? The Vita Activa is um, the opposite of the Vita Contemplativa. Mm-hmm. Uh, In what way? She, well, she, is, she writes about uh, how the Vita Activa <coughs> um, really becomes defined in the conflict between the philosopher and the polis, uh, and, 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 and with Socrates. Um, And I mean, especially in Plato, it's it's the activities of life that make the uh, vita contemplativa possible, or that interrupts uh, contemplation. Um, so it's the kind of negative of this. Well, for, 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 she, she talks about contemplation as the complete cessation of activity. So the act of life is all of the activities that one would be doing if one wasn't contemplating. Right. Um, and. For her, the act of life, in the way that it's been conceptualized from Plato to Aristotle to Augustine to Aquinas, has lost all of these kind of um, specialized distinctions within itself. So it, it, it became identified as just activity in general or busybodiness. Yeah. Um, where, where, and in that tradition, it's usually denigrated um, in the same way that you know it, it, in rationalism there's this uh, dichotomy between reason and the passions uh, so it's kind of similar to that in, in, in some way I'd say um, and with those kind of dichotomies all of the um, all of the variation within those concepts sort of get, gets lost um, so her project in this book is to specify the distinctions between the different levels of the Vida Activa and also place them on an even footing with uh, contemplation right. and to show that um, philosophy, philosophy is also a part of philosophy and doing aren't that different. Yeah. Um, 
and I mean, through uh, my, my favourite section in this book, is, my favourite section in books, the permanence of the world and the work of art, where she talks about uh, thought and cognition and logic, um, and uh, she also discusses it in the prologue too, and the distinction between eternity and immortality, but how uh, the philosopher must always be a part of the world to uh, share their thought, their thoughts with others. Um, and then the only way, the, 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 the primary way they're able to share these ideas is through writing, which is the act of cognition, which is a type of type of work, it's putting words together to convey uh, your notions. Um, so and, I, I, I think this is how she conceives of her own work too. Because I mean, the, 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 her proposal in the in the prologue of the human condition is that uh, very simply, she wants to uh, think through what we're doing. Um, so I, I think within the course of the human condition, she's also grappling with what her role is in uh, society in general. I I'm, for my own part, am really interested in this idea of immor immortality and eternity. Oh yeah. So what distinction can we draw between the two and then between the two from them in uh, the distinction between them and, and mortality? And what role or how does that relate to the shift from the distinction between the public and the private into the social? Mm -hmm. Where for me it seems though, right, eternity or immortality didn't have anything to do with the body where like the body would live on but rather it was how the uh, being able to engage in some kind of meaningful political matter mm -hmm. allowed the, the name, right? Yeah. As, as some, it allowed something to continue on, or that uh, allowing for that excellence that ke could keep going. Whereas in the social, or in this sort of equalization, sure, yeah, you're, you're, you're free mm -hmm. to do whatever you want, you're also free to starve, you're free to say whatever you want, but you're also free to be forgotten, mm -hmm. quite simply where it becomes a, not a matter of being a part of a world of meaning, but being part of a world of nothingness. And it's in that way, like, okay, well, to, to yeah. get well, at no, me no, for no, it. Not nothingness, necessarily, it's just life. Life is the highest good in, in, in that the, sort of society. In the social? In, in the social, I think. And it's, just, it's, it's all about the prolongation of, of mortality. Yeah. Um, and, and even... Even Illich writes about this in the medical nemesis of how the uh, medical establishments just corrupt for making people live longer lives than they should. Um, now, could could we say then that uh, these developments in like medical science or whatever, or even biopolitics, mm -hmm. this, this sort of obsession with the prolongation of life mm -hmm. is a sort of compensatory sort of compensation for that loss of immortality or eternity mm -hmm. in being a political agent or being a veto. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's very, that's very, um, that's very perspicacious. I think that, I mean, it's, the, 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 the Walt Disney being frozen is a kind of parody of what <laughs> immortality should be. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You, you're not here, but, yeah, yeah, but you're here. Yeah. Like you're Indeed. You're still alive. Um, I'd be curious. To, I mean, what what would Baldrillard? I mean, but but definitely sort of written about like how uh, uh, the idea to sort of prolong life 
um, and especially Walt Disney too, are sort of being frozen. How he, he writes about that specifically. He says he, he makes a kind of a quip about it. Uh, he says uh, maybe we should do to crim- criminals what we've done to uh, Walt Disney. We freeze them until we find out what what sentence they should get or what what until we learn what justice is, and then we'll unfreeze them and we'll apply <laughs> the justice to them. Uh, but um, I yeah. I think he would say that it like as I just presented it it is something of a strategy mm-hmm. employed by a sort of uh, simulacral um, system intended to convince us of our sort of humanity or that thing we haven't lost mm-hmm. so I think that the, like Hannah Arendt is really laying out like a base of what constitutes a sort of humanity humanity at least for like thousands of years mm-hmm. being like a political agent being an agent that in, that engaged with the world in some sort of either through words and deeds or through uh, tilling the soil or toil mm-hmm. um, which is something that we compensate for through various means mm-hmm. right take and it's an example I've given many times but in the thing like sexuality you know we pretend we haven't lost this thing called sexuality or that it hasn't undergone a radical change mm-hmm. by bombarding ourselves with like pornography or something like that yeah. ridiculous to, to the nth power yeah. but it's in that way that I kind of think about uh, that shift from immortality to mortality or what we are doing today in the wake of our of the social mm-hmm. or if we could say we've even moved beyond that maybe well, it, it, it strikes me that in post-apocalyptic films no one's really no one really cares about being uh, remembered of <laughs> like people are reduced to this the bare life it's all about competition with one another. Right, it's right, either I'm going right. to eat you or you're going to eat me. Yeah. And, and this is what life is the highest good really means. Yeah. It means that I want to live yeah. and your death is the foundation of my life. Exactly. Um, and it's all about mortality. Mortality is prioritized. Um, immortality requires people who care enough about the world to sort of keep it stable and, and, and this is what she like r- r- writes about in uh, the end of the section on action about the way to um, the, 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 the only thing we can do to deal with unpredictability is, is, the, pro- is the power to promise um, and, and this is why she prefers the idea of the social contract rather than uh, Plato's idea of um, a system of the ruler and the ruled, because the, uh, the the social contract means that people have enough freedom within the within these boundaries to um, act in certain ways, but it means that society won't kind of fall apart. Um, and also, it's a way of, of a way of guaranteeing the future too, which is which is uh, where. Uh, which means that people are more comfortable to have these kind of aspirations toward immortality. Right. Because if if if, if there wasn't a sort of stable political uh, realm or st- stable public realm, then I mean, what, what's the point of trying to um, reach excellence? Uh, and that's a critique of the society of laborers. It's like, well. Well, 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 as long as we can do enough to stay alive, um, then that's all uh, life really means to me. 
Right, and in her words, she, there's an interesting moment when she thinks about our relationship to machines mm-hmm. in that way, where she says, and this is in the chapter uh, Work, she says, unlike the tools of workmanship, which at every given moment in the work process remain the servants of the hand, of the hand, sorry, the machines demand that the laborer serve them, that he adjust the natural rhythm of his body to their mechanical movement. This, certainly, does not imply that men are such are such adjust to or become the servants of their machines, but it does mean that as long as their work at as long as the work at the machine lasts, the mechanical process has replaced the rhythm of the human body. Mm-hmm. So there is a very specific shift from a very biologically determined r- real body that is that is being screwed up in relation to the mm-hmm. to uh, to the um, the machines. And when we think of work in that way, or labor, or what it means to be um, to be to be a laborer today, or a worker today, is very different in that way from what it what we may have thought about it, or what how Arendt thought about it in relation to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. In that, there's no relation. Like, and this is just Marx in in very many ways. Like, oh, yeah. That sort of alienation from the from the uh, mm-hmm. the thing you're producing, right? But for Arendt, that it wouldn't be enough if you had some kind of connection, some real fundamental connection to the car you made, right? Mm-hmm. Simply because that doesn't have that connection to the earth that I think in some way she would like to see. Mm-hmm. So that, um, and in that way, being a part of something that was very much a continuation or a progression of this thing called the human condition. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I, I have a question now. Is that a fair way to look at the distinction she makes between herself and Marx or her project in Marx, where she thinks that Marx perhaps doesn't consider that there very much is this human condition and that simply by attaching a sort of uh, proletarian connection to the objects being produced or anything of that sort is not enough in reclaiming in in backpedaling to this point if it can actually be mm-hmm. reachieved or do you think that that's uh, not not a fair way to look at her her take on Marx I think her take on Marx isn't particularly fair um, I think this certainly links to the criticism that most people have have of Arendt's human condition which is that the division between labor and work seems kind of arbitrary. I mean, her only proof for it is like there are these two different words uh, <laughs> in English, French, and German. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty much her, uh, her only basis for the entire argument against uh, Marx. Um, and I think that, I mean, what I have here in my copy. I don't know if this is really the best way to conceptualize her, her criticism of Marx. Is that the fact remains that in all stages of his work, he, Marx defines man as an animal labyrinth and then leads him into a society in which this greatest and most human power is no longer necessary. We are left with the rather distressing alternative between productive slavery and unproductive freedom. So, in the way that a rent thinks about um, labor, you can't have that without life itself. Um, 
and some her main criticism of, of, of Marx is um, his belief that you can get rid of labor and you can get rid of um, work. I don't, I don't think that she really deals with um, Marx's concept of alienation fruitfully. Right. Um, That's fair. Yeah. As you, and she's, she's more interested in world alienation, which is um, which is a different I- idea. Um, I think what. I mean, I I, I, and she and she doesn't really talk about wages too. I think that, or I, I mean, I, and she she discusses money. I mean, she she doesn't she doesn't deal with Marx on Marx's terms. I'd say. Um, But still, I mean, the, the, the criticism that she puts forward of Marx and human condition is something that I've never entirely comprehended. It seems, um, seems like it seems like it happens in a different space from where Marx operates. Um, I don't know. Yeah, because that 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 notion that. I don't think that Marx advocates for an end of work mm-hmm. totally, yeah. right? Because that's totally impossible. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah. I think that she's a very selective reader in that mm-hmm. way, and she she very is very much prepared to take those brief moments mm-hmm. when it would seem as such. Mm-hmm. I, I think they have two different ideas of what history is. Okay, like um, like like what? I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for, 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 I mean, it, it's. Distinguished well, it's Hegel in, and it's distinguished in German of like the history and Geschichte of history uh, is this this list of events that have taken place um, and so what what happens in the past has happened in the past what happens in the present is you know is just what will be future uh, what will be history eventually whereas Geschichte is this idea of history as a process that includes the past present and the future which is for Hegel in like, very vulgar terms, like the unfolding of the world spirit, uh, for, for for Marx, it's this. Um, well, I mean, in a kind of uh, mechanical Marxist sense, of, like it's this uh, the, 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 the unfolding of the contradictions of capital that eventually leads to the dictatorship of the proletariat and then towards a, a, um, a communist society but despite all and, 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 and for a rent the idea of history as process is um, antithetical to what history should be mm-hmm. so, so to kind of to be a little bit mean to Arendt I would wonder to what extent the consideration of a sort of symbolic uh, necessity there is and what I mean by that is almost the level of culture where where these things do vary mm-hmm. like epistemologically and how work in in a, like a Marxist sense like how work you know the base in, in some way kind of informs the the top or the, the superstructure uh, so I'd wonder to what extent that work always already plays within the realm of a sort of 
like cultural understanding that ha has nothing to do with action per se, right? And this comes down to a, a two. It, it'd be the id to the super or the ego to the superego. It's kind of that in between the id, which is like a basic function. Because I'm also assuming that we've established that the distinction between work and labor isn't all that clear. So I'm kind of blending the two together. So I'm wondering about that sort of middle ground, notably culture, which I think Marx pays much more attention to than Arendt. And I'd, be, and I'd wonder to what extent her project actually allows for any sort of analysis that would consider how things are just simply different across time and space, if it does at all. Because I would, it, it, for a book titled The Human Condition, it seems oddly Greek. You mean there are other cultures? That'd be like, for rent, I mean, the culture is the Greeks. And, I know, and um, that's, that's slightly concerning. But for her, that's any sort of exertion of a thing called culture, or that thing that I've mm. kind of, I very poorly place between work and labor and then action or that thing that sort of is the space around which action takes place mm -hmm. the cultural realm or whatever how for her these doesn't matter what form it takes because yeah. in every single situation there would be that thing called public engagement mm -hmm. you know in some form whether it happened around a drumming circle mm -hmm. or, or in the Greek pol polis or whatever but it seems too neat in that way, like almost uh, too simple for such a such a complex thinker, like someone that that is very selective, as we said, mm -hmm. her reading of Marx, and it seems like she's very selective in in proposing her own yeah. philosophy. Is that is that unfair? Is that uh, am I being too hard on our? Yeah, end? I mean, I'm, she, I'm, she can't consider every single yeah, situation. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. it is a work of. It's, it, she's working within the history of ideas, and when you when you start off with the Greeks, then you have to go on through a sudden through, through a trajectory through the Romans, um, and then, yeah, through, and then yeah, through and then through Christianity, yeah. and then through a bunch of other German thinkers and and, and French thinkers. Um, I think the only other English thinker she refers to actually no, I mean, is Whitehead American or I don't English? know. I don't no know. clue. Well, I mean, it's cool out for it. So I mean, uh, that seems really British to me. Um, but, but yeah, Bentham and Whitehead are the only uh, British things that she refers to. But I mean, it, it is just. Uh, I mean, she's a European thinker. I mean, she yeah. studied with Heidegger and Jaspers. I mean, they're not like the most most multicultural <laughs> <laughs> what? philosophers. What? What? No. So I'm, mean, but but I think that I mean I do. I know that Arendt really would hate the idea that her autobiography was being dragged into her work. This is the yeah, yeah, yeah. this is the work of like a refugee yeah. who's living in America at this time of. Um, very fast technological advancement. Yeah. Um, the, the rise of mass society, mass culture, um, the loss of... I mean, this is just on the cusp of postmodernism, so 
there, there, there's this risk of like high culture and low culture being uh, molded um, very close to the hippie movement rock and rolls starting around now and so, 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 so she's someone who comes from this very high European cultural background who's uh, living in America at the time where uh, what's normally classified as low culture is gaining uh, is gaining ground really and one of the main conflicts in the human condition is the conflict between durability and disposability of the, 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 the of work versus labor um, and I, sort of, I think that in the human condition she's trying to defend what European thinkers have fought for in this North American space. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, which is also what Herbert Marcuse does in, um, in a subtle way in The One-Dimensional Man. There's a, there's a, uh, and which obviously what um, Adorno and Hawkeye would do too. I think maybe it's a, maybe it's a German impulse. If, uh, if you move to America, you need to have this sort of very high culture stance. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I hate jazz music, uh, <laughs> which, yeah, but... Yeah. I think I've yeah, gone way off topic, but yeah. that's, that's almost like a conspiracy theory reading of Hannah Arendt. But it's good, I, 